Okay, welcome to the Euro 2020 podcast of ideas. There's only been only one match since our last podcast, but it seems a very long time ago. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Rob Lyons, Alistair Donald, Mo Lovett, and Jacob Reynolds to review the Euro 2020 tournament uh, and look at what its legacy might be um, uh, for, for the future and the ongoing raging debates uh, which it is initiated. So some of us are still smarting from the match on Sunday. Um, I know I am, but uh, Alistair, would you like to kick us off with your reflections on Sunday's Sunday's big match? Yeah, I thought that Italy were worthy champions in the end, uh, the best team in the tournament, uh, set the pace from very early on in the opening game when they dismantled Turkey 3-0 came through the harder side of the draw, I think, and uh, needed to get past tough teams in the knockout round. Uh, very good game against Belgium, tough game against Spain. Uh, and I think they ultimately came to the final battle-hardened for that final in a way that England weren't quite uh, at the same level and had you know, not met the same standard of team on the way. And I thought Italy, although... As we said, the last podcast, Italy's uh, weaknesses were probably at the fullbacks, and England did brilliantly to exploit that in the early stages of the game. Arguably had the better of the first half, although Italy uh, came back into it from, from the last 15 minutes of, 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 of the first half. But I think in tournament football, you really earn your money in terms of the way that you reorganise yourself and react, respond to circumstances during the match. And I thought Italy did that very well in the second half with some very good substitutions uh, that piled the pressure on England. England um, went backwards, uh, weren't able to pass the ball, keep the ball very well. And Italy, I thought, uh, were much the stronger team in, in, in the second half. I think that it was very interesting the way that uh, the Italians were arguing with them amongst themselves in the first half that you know they you, you on on one level they seemed a bit rattled but on another level you just thought this is them really gearing themselves up and and getting into this game i think it takes a certain context to be able to have those sorts of arguments on the pitch i mean we already saw in the earlier round the way that the french argued on the pitch against uh, Switzerland, I think it was, and, and broadly speaking, fell apart through that process. Whereas Italy had a context to do that, that uh, really steeled themselves and allowed them to step up. And when they brought on the substitutes in the second half to really start to dominate the game and pass it well. And, and uh, I think they were worthy winners in the end. I don't think England lost it on penalties. I think they, they lost it because they weren't able to respond during the match to the pressure that Italy put upon them. And we said in the last podcast that uh, we, I think we praised Southgate to some extent for um, perhaps having more of a tactical plan than we thought at the start and for in dropping Grealish, in taking Grealish off during the semi-final, having, having a, a, a fairly ruthless um, streak in him. But I think ultimately it's not ruthlessness, but boldness that gets you. And he didn't have the boldness to be able to change that team in a way that would counter the Italian team. And I think that's what lost them the match. I agree with all that. I think that um, I, the, the thing that really impressed me, especially from the second half, was the Italian pressing. So that Kane, who had was doing a really, really good job and very impressive in terms of coming short and holding the ball up and running. Uh, they, they just kind of like 
gave him no space in which to 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 do any of that. And when he did manage to wriggle free, there was always a like a little trip or a little tug or a nudge or whatever. They were very smart about picking up a free kick or whatever just to break up the momentum of England's play. But in general, yes, I mean England's just drifted further and further back and Italy uh, passed the ball around very, very well. Um, that said, it was a very close game nonetheless. And uh, there are just various different moments where you think if that had just gone this way or that way, then you know, the, the result could have been entirely different. I would be talking in quite different terms. You know, I was just watching the highlights again and there was a cross from Kane that missed Stone's head by about four inches. Um, Donnarumma was in no man's land. Just any contact probably would have stuck it in the back of the net. You know, Rashford's penalty at the end. You know, it was a brilliant penalty apart from it hit the post rather than just going inside the post. I mean, there, there are all these fine margins. At the end of the day, England didn't lose in normal play throughout the tournament, had a very good defence throughout the tournament. Um, and they were a very, very good side. And, um, you know, if they'd had a little bit of the rub of the ball, they or they would have, you know, they could have easily won it as well. It, although I do think Italy were definitely the best team in the tournament and they were worthy winners on the night. I think, um, I mean, it's been exhaustively analysed. A lot of people have talked about the midfield battle. A lot of people have talked about how England were unable to... Um, make the break on the counter-attack because maybe their ball skills under pressure weren't quite good enough and they'd miss like a like a commanding presence in the midfield. And obviously people have also talked about the penalties and how um, maybe having your younger, less experienced players, although even though we know it was Southgate's choice, now not their own, but you maybe wanted different players to take those crucial penalties. That's all very true. As someone who's more of a rugby fan, for me, you could almost tell the story of the game in terms of the what is always talked about in rugby, which is the physical battle. And England were winning the physical battle for much of the first half. And then they got completely outmuscled throughout um, after, especially after the uh, half time. And that to me was uh, indicative of the way that we'd all said, and everyone knows Italy play. They're very physical. They're very old fashioned in that respect. And that obviously that tug that Chiellini had um, around the neck, that, that was like kind of emblematic of the game where Italy were like, by the end of the game, there's all more commanding presence on the pitch. I mean, for me, it was almost like um, the physical embodiment of the uh, Three Lions song, the Skinner and Padil song, because we came out with so much kind of cockeyed optimism. I mean, if you're going to put money on at the beginning of the tournament, you would have put it on Italy, obviously. And we knew we, we had this kind of formidable opponent, but... I looked at um, Harry Maguire's face as he came out of that tunnel and I thought, we've got this. You know, this is my cockeyed optimism here. And for the first 20 minutes, I think we really did. We had complete control of the game. And obviously it was that early goal by Luke Shaw, which just kind of strengthened that hope, really. And then gradually you watched as Italy um, regain control. And it's interesting to kind of reflect back and, uh, and realise that, you know, throughout the game, England only had 34% possession. Um, you know the pa- the passing and the control of the ball from the Italians was just it was just something in England couldn't get past. But um, Pickford made some amazing saves, particularly in the second half. I think we kind of forget with you know with it going to penalties that um, there were some really fine moments uh, in the game. Um, but um, to me, for me, it was sort of the game management. Um, now Southgate's been pretty good at looking at who his opponents are. And putting up the starting lineup that kind of matches the opponents in quite well, quite a good way. So you know, as the tournament tournaments progressed, he's kind of made those starting lineup changes. But during the game, 
Um, I mean, it's been much talked about, as other people have said, but saving those substitutions right till the closing minute. I mean, Grealish wasn't brought on until the first half of extra time. Rashford and Sancho, as we've said, were only brought on in the closing minutes of extra time. And um, it was almost like he was playing for the inevitable penalty shootout. He was saving that for the inevitable uh, penalty shootout. And I, I thought, as Alistair said, it was about boldness and that was lacking. And it's interesting as well. I thought Kane had quite a poor match, as did Sterling, actually, um, with one or two exceptional moments. But, um, you know, Kane didn't have a single touch inside the 18-yard box. There was just no... He, he just had no room. It was um, where they really struggled I thought was you know up, up front they were obviously out thought or Southgate was out thought as well as the team was out thought and what Mo's just said about the early coming out in the, I mean that's a story of my footballing life from 1970 quarterfinal from West Germany 1996 Euro 96 and all these examples the, the story is that England score early often too early as they say but anyway and then the other team comes back and wins and that's been like, it's been like that. And not every tournament's like that, but it's basically been a story for like 50 years, since 1966. That's what's <laughs> happened. So it's happened, that pattern has, has happened again. So the fact that England, the minute Shaw scored, I thought he scored too early, which obviously in many ways makes no sense. But that, I, I, they, I remember 1996 semi-final, they actually said, oh, we've scored, I think it was a sixth minute or something. It's like, oh, we scored too early. We've got to hang on for 84 minutes or whatever. So that, that is, this narrative is just then repeated in the way and, and people have described then, uh, then what happened. Although, as Rob says, it was very, very close and a couple of decent penalties at the end. And to me, Southgate messed up the whole thing by bringing people on cold just for penalties and whatever, who he hasn't trusted or he hasn't used. Maybe he does trust them. He hasn't used during the tournament. Doesn't seem... The way to go and so that whole uh, over defensive way of dealing with it I didn't agree with also there's a ridiculous petition going back around now which has got 100,000 signatures saying the match should have been replayed match should be replayed because of Chiellini's foul and whatever and some other incident and you just think my uh, response is more if only Chiellini and Benucci were on our side yeah. you'd be much more likely that's what you, you that's the sort of player we haven't got. So I would, the one thing I say in Southgate's defence, when it comes to penalties, you know, Maguire and Kane would be the first two on your list. And then who's the third? I don't know. I mean, I probably wouldn't have picked the people he picked. Or I might pick Rashford if he'd been on for a period of time. But Saka to take the decisive one, it doesn't seem a good idea. But it's not like there's a whole team of hardened, experienced people who will just cope with that pressure. And the fact that Rashford missed, yes, he, he was four four inches away from being a goal. But when you've got a goalkeeper like Donnarumma, who people find intimidating, that is part of the that is part of the match. And people will try and push it to the edge or in the corner because they know they're facing a very good goalkeeper who makes, you know, who fills the goal and makes the goal seem small. So all these Things are, are, you know, are factors in the whole, in the whole process. Well, I just think it was notable that uh, as the tournament tournament progressed, and every you know, I watched all the matches out. 
um, in pubs. And Maguire became the person that uh, uh, English fans latched onto as 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 the kind of hero or the focal point of the team. And that's you know that's a uh, a recognition of the fact that he was the one person within that team or certainly the, the person that most showed some sort of leadership in, in, in the team and that gave um, supporters something to, 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 to hold on to. I guess the irony perhaps of, of England going out is that I, I thought they went out in a very similar way to Scotland in not being prepared to take the initiative and change the game, which I thought was Scotland's problem in that Croatia game when they went out. Um, I, I just think these things are really important. You've got, you've got to recognise what's going on in the game and act to change it. And the fact that Southgate uh, only used two substitutes in his 90 minutes, uh, I, I thought was a very telling lack of um, taking the initiative and attempting to wrestle control. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to get the Harry Maguire song out of my head all week. I think it's just like on loop, having been um, in, in the pub uh, watching the game. And I, mean, I guess we can come on to talk about that because for most people, I think that's the like outstanding feature of the final and maybe the tournament as a whole is this is a finally a time to go back into social settings, the return of sociability, watch things in the pub, experience all of those emotions together. And where I was, it was, I mean, everyone was just saying it's like, there was like COVID is like a thing of the past. The pub was absolutely rammed. People were standing, there were people walking up the street to come and join and just stand around and watch it. And it was heaving and you had the whole emotion of it. There was this absolutely gigantic guy that like, if anyone knows the Bond villain Grant from, from Russia with love, he's like this big blonde guy. And he, he, he was just up for it, really Larry, blowing his vuvuzela all over the place. By the end of it, penalties, he had his head in the lap of my friend who had never met before because he just couldn't bear to watch it. And it was just like one of these transformative moments where suddenly society is back together and people experience these things and these highs and these lows all the same. It's, and that for me is the, the return of sociability, the return of that kind of easy uh, intercourse between people and all the rest of it. That's the kind of story of the final and the story of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, usually, you know, the day after a defeat, I'm absolutely crestfallen and, you know, really depressed, can't pick myself but I didn't feel like that this time and I think that's probably for the reason uh, Jacob said I enjoyed the journey and I you know that was sort of more important than the win really it was seeing people coming back together and having fun and I live in the suburbs so it's not quite the same as living in the city or a town but you know people had their flags out and bunting and kids were playing football on the green that I've never seen playing football before and it it just really felt like a proper sort of community spirit and uh yeah I think it did bring the country together uh that journey up to the final and, and so I wouldn't have swapped that for the world and it sort of didn't make me feel so bad about the defeat in the end yeah I I experienced this tournament in a rural village in Scotland so I didn't have your great coming together thanks very much <laughs> um, but I was just gonna say look we've got the, the hope for the future is that they uh this is a, a, a young team I looked at the squad there's only three players in their thirties and then the young, their early thirties, um, so um, and the average age, I think, it was the third youngest squad in the, the tournament. So, and now they've got uh, quite a number of players who have been deep in two international tournaments. So they've got a lot of experience there. I mean, as somebody pointed out, their centre midfield, Rice and Phillips, haven't even played a UEFA club game between them. So they so they've they've they'll have learned from this experience as well and we'll we you know we'll we'll come back together better and hope for the future in Qatar next year. Um admittedly it's gonna be bloody hot. 
So uh, whether they're okay with that is another matter. But anyway, I just think that let's just, just uh, emphasize the positive as well. That you know, while we didn't have enough old hands in that team um, on Sunday night, come next year you've got players that have reached a World Cup final, a good squad of players who are young and have got time to develop even further. So. Yes, let you know. well, I'll, I'll exchange Euros for a World Cup in 2022. How about that? Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a sense of, in London, I mean, my neighbour said to me, it's great, this sense of euphoria, which exists, which did exist, uh, la, you know, last week and then on Sunday was a very peculiar, you know, anticipatory atmosphere before the match. And obviously it was punctured by the match. But I think what, what Mo says afterwards, there was a, afterwards people felt that they'd been through a journey and saw it positively i'm one of those people who's more affected by the result i'm you know the result is what will last in six months six years uh 20 years time or or or, or whatever so that's the case but it's it certainly uh it certainly had that it certainly brought people together across the country around you know people who are traditionally football fans and who are not, um, and people very much had that communal sense, got behind the team, and as Jacob said, it took people out of the general doom around COVID, and there was a sense of a return in some, some many instances, a, a, return, a, a return to normality, which makes it in some ways quite strange that the debate after the final um, although some of those things have, uh, have been referred to, ha- has been around the you know racism on Twitter or racism uh, on Instagram or social media, um, uh, uh, people condemning the fans for what a number of fans how they might have behaved at Wembley or Central London, and many of the positive things people have just described are sort of put to the margins, almost like it's like it never happened. So. Um, do people have thoughts on what's going on there? I mean, that, one of the earlier podcasts, we talked about taking the knee and we're quite critical of this idea that you had the, you know, the, 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 the players were taking the knee and then the fans had to respond in a particular way and they couldn't boo in a pantomime way or any other way because that wasn't legitimate. And now it's gone even further that people who were booing are now seen as being instrumental in creating the atmosphere where there's social media and even the home secretary who uh, I don't think is, uh, uh, who, who is, has been dragged into it and being held responsible for some of these things. So what do people think is going on there and, and uh, how, how should we respond to these things? I think it's very instructive how quickly the discussion has moved. I mean, I would like, like some of the other people here, like taking the knees, not particularly my cup of tea, Although it was very notable for me again in this pub full of like Larry football fans that everybody applauded unanimously the taking of the knee. And there's the idea that like there's widespread racism amongst football fans is, is to me kind of baffling. But and then and then of course on you've got these things on Twitter, although even Gareth Southgate's noted it's like probably predominantly either bot farms or people abroad, and they'll struggle to locate even a handful of examples of real football fans in this country engaging in that kind of abuse. But, I mean, the thing that's instructive is how it's almost how desperate a certain section of the commentariat are to, go, to cast this um, as these sort of 
another attempt at demonizing sort of ordinary fans or more broadly the working class and one of my friends described the the ensuing thing over the uh, scrum at Wembley and everybody pushing their way inside as like the Guardian desperately trying to invent a British version of the storming of the capital i.e this moment where sort of ordinary people force themselves on uh, politics and they're kind of desperate for this to happen so even when you've got like football fans widely now like applauding the taking the knee regardless of what they might th- thought about it before it's like that nothing's ever enough and you have to cast all these people that have been out enjoying themselves experiencing normal life again and it seems that there's a desperate desire to cast this in terms of racism yobbishness drunkenness all the rest of it where as many people have pointed out compared to other episodes in history the sort of there's been much less yobbishness around especially after the loss and then secondly there's uh, the there's no widespread racism and they'll really struggle to find it and it shows you how deep that sort of distaste for ordinary people really goes amongst a certain section of society yeah i mean i think it's quite staggering how unshakable that that belief is and and like jacob said it was so quick to turn um into this kind of racializing of the game uh, and people did that for for well-meaning purposes as well as um you know you know less well-meaning pur- uh, purposes um a lot of the um, information that went out to promote the team just concentrated on uh, Rashford, Sancho and Saka, uh, you know, to kind of say that we are a diverse society and we value our players. That was a well-meaning gesture, but of course it's all racialising. It's, kind of, you know, completely kind of dividing the team up into black and white players. And um, I was quite surprised by how quickly the conversation turned and, um you know, obviously we've seen latterly that those racist tweets were manufactured by bot farms. Most of them came from overseas. A small percentage were um, out and out racist um, and a slightly larger percentage were just critical of black players. And and so, you, you know, you can dig down and you can analyse all of that and make some pronouncements as to whether or not um, England is a racist society or whether footballers or football fans are racist and all the rest of it. But the thing that concerns me more than anything is there's just this unshakable belief, despite the evidence to the contrary within a certain section of society, that the working class are, are racist and, and that just doesn't go away. And I remember sort of 30 years ago, um, having my interview for university and one of the dons um, made this accusation that the, ra- the working class were more racist than the, the middle class. And I gave such an impassioned defence of why that was absolute nonsense with evidence and anecdotal um, uh, experiences and, and all the rest of it. And I thought we'd move past that phase. But it seems like the elites, the sneering middle classes, will are just completely unshakable on their belief that um, the working class are racist. And I find it very difficult to work out how to challenge that um, because, you know, there have been several notable attempts to look at the percentage of tweets aimed at the team that were racist and the defacing of the the Rashford um, uh, mural uh, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, but ultimately, if people have got that underlying assumption, how on earth do you kind of continue to make the case that whilst racism Racism is utterly deplorable, and I want to see an end to it. It's nowhere near as bad as this. Um, this the way that the media and the elites kind of make it out to be. I mean, it, it's like people have said, but it's so many different things have been conflated around you know, around this. So it's mainly journalists and comedians. It seems to be on 
Twitter who had, and particularly there's a number of journalists around the England camp who are really sort of bought into the Southgate thing um, in a way that hadn't happened before Southgate. And there's a lot of comedians on Twitter who have got a lot of time and spend their time um, looking at these things. But there's just a number of different things. Like the, there's a very interesting article I just read before this on the organization of the people who broke into Wembley, who've done an, who's sort of broken cover and they've done an interview of how they organized that, which is not, it's, it's very simple. It's just a group of people got together to break into Wembley. And obviously they shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong thing to do. But they just thought that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. But that's, that's got nothing to do with racism or anything like that. It was a group of people who organized themselves to, and quite well and successfully did that. Then there are the racist tweets, which, as Moa said, uh, it, it, there's a, a handful have been confirmed as coming from the UK and many came from overseas. Uh, eventually, I'm sure we'll find out where they came from. Then there's the hijinks of, you know, working class blokes who get drunk in the day and call. We, this seems to be the thing in an almost Victorian way that people on Twitter, so the people go out into Leicester Square, get drunk and um, but behave badly as you know as it's widely seen, and then people on Twitter, in a way that wouldn't have been possible before because Twitter didn't exist, then look for videos on Twitter of these people behaving badly and spend the whole day in this voyeuristic way, vicariously living through these people behaving badly, which is a very perverse thing to do. And then they write articles or they do comedy sketches or whatever, saying how, how dreadful they are. And, and there's all these different things going on. And then there's the taking the knee stuff itself. And you have people like Gary Neville saying, well, who don't like the Tories, say things which then bring the prime minister into it or Priti Patel into it, which again is a, is a more political and slightly different thing and not something I agree with because I'm not a fan of taking the knee, whether it's to Marcus Rashford or it's to the Queen or anybody else. It's not it's a submissive gesture that I'm not a big fan of. But there's this now not taking the knee has been equated in certain circles with racism. Anyway, all these different things are being uh, conflated. I just want to mention Jonathan Liu, who I criticised last week, but actually has written a very good article <coughs> on some of this who made the point that afterwards there were very few isolated incidents. The vandalism of a Marcus Rashford mural in Withington, the reprehensible look at me racist abuse of England black players on Instagram. Equally predictably, these acts were in instantly distended and fetishized by media desperate for them to happen. Desperate to affix a simple visual motif to England's chagrin, to generate enough shock and outrage to fill Tuesday's newspapers. And you might not agree with his take, but you have to admit that what he described is exactly what happened. The, the England loss on penalties hasn't been poured over. It, it's sort of been rather brushed under the carpet and it was all, all very unfortunate. Um, but we don't really want to, it doesn't fit in with the kind of euphoric mood. But then everything's been kind of forced into this new uh, uh, prism to do with race and social media and all the rest of it. I thought it was a very acute observation that, that he made. And it's, I think looking at some of these things more, more, more broadly bears merit. Well, on the one hand, I mean, I was really shocked by BBC Breakfast um, uh, the other morning where um, Dan Walker was uh, 
grilling Steve Barclay, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, and saying, uh, you know, how can Pretty Patel be on the wrong side of history? And it was just like a very sort of one-sided view of, 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 of what happened, as if Pretty Patel hasn't received racist abuse in her time or hasn't supported anti-racist initiatives um, in football. Um, so it's a really, really odd thing. But, the, but BBC Breakfast is, has been for quite some time the PR arm of the Marcus Rashford campaign and has completely sort of got a very personal sort of uh, stake in that, if you if you like. But there's an awful lot of talking past each other because the, 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 there wasn't any sense of, well, why don't we find out why the people have been booing? At least BBC Newsbeat, I found an article from June where BBC Newsbeat actually went and talked to some people who have been doing the booing and, and why... They were reacting against it in terms of the, uh, the you know, disliking the identity politics or just dis- disliking the the um, sort of feeling of being lectured by uh, by footballers and, and 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 all of this. I think, if I may bring it to an Academy of Ideas moment here, is that the real importance of debate, where people you know, get together in good faith and actually share their points of view and actually try to understand why the other side are saying what they're saying and it's very easy in this in the current climate on Twitter to just ha- have a completely caricatured side view of one side or the other um, and you know it, 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 developing some nuance and some understanding of why people take what on the surface seem to you to be objectionable positions is a very very important thing. It seems almost that this tournament has uh, signified the globalization of the culture wars in a way because I, I think obviously people have been talking about culture wars for a number of years, decades even now, but recently the focus has very much been America with the American elections last year. And there's also the main focus of, of the way that people talk about the culture wars and how it's appeared as it, within universities, within cultural institutions, and I suppose more late, lately within companies and, and corporations. But it seems that uh, this tournament has signified this sort of shift of focus from America to Europe and also through a, a, a tournament that has a global audience. Um, it is it is now played out within sport, which is, is uh, I think, a, 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 something that's relatively new and uh, within that context, I, I very much agree with what Jeff said. The, the, the conflation of different things over the past few weeks has, has, has been very important because, uh, yes, there was an action that, you know, a few idiots on uh, Sunday night after after the match tweeted. And as Jacob says, maybe they come from bot farms or, or whatever, but they came out. But that has been taken and turned into what all football fans are like, which is, you know, there's no equivalence between a few idiots and what all football fans are like. And then that has been cynically used in the context of the discussion uh, on taking the knee to um, suggest that anybody who even raised a question about uh, the political manifestations of, 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 of the last year and the way that racism has, has been talked about and the imposition of things like taking the knee. Anybody who even questioned that has, has, has then been taken to uh, be a problem. And so as, as, as Rob says, that, that is a recipe for undermining any 
kind of proper political discussion because you demonize anybody that even dares to question uh, the way that these things play themselves out. And that to me is, is, is the kind of uh, worrying thing about the, where we're coming out of this tournament is, is that this, any sort of dissent is being stamped out. And you can imagine that this, this discussion, um, now it's come to sport, is, is going to very much continue, first of all, through the Olympics and then probably through different sports and different sporting occasions in the foreseeable future. If I can just say on the Jonathan Liu article, it, but it's, it's a great article, but it's typical kind of Guardian way. It like, wants to find the causes for a thing that he describes very well, as you say, in anything but the actual causes. So he goes on to talk about how it's all due to the privatisation of public spaces, so on sacred local government by conservative administrations, the politics of division, all these like typical Guardian buzzwords and completely misses the fact that like there's been a lockdown which has completely decimated especially working class social life for months and months and months on end. And the fact that the lots of the reason for this kind of devastation or, or attacks on local civic pride is because there are lots of people that live in places that people who write for the Guardian and live in London would like much rather completely forget about. And even, even in the article, and he's like, oh, it's so nice to see little towns like Matlock um, emblazoned on English, on St. Like St. George's crosses. Even that for him is, the quote, is still an unpleasant celebration of personal um, inviability and civic pride. So it's a great article. Everyone should go and read it. But it just, it kind of like misses the cause completely. And that's the, what's so frustrating about elements of this discussion. The, the, the thing about the Jonathan Liu article is more that he just tries to understand what's happening. And I don't necessarily agree with all, all of his analysis. And obviously there's some contemporary things around the lockdown and there's some broader uh, you know, historical tr trends which, which, he, which he has a point. But it's more that the consensus view has just been, look at these disgusting people and how they behave. And we have to share the same country with them. And I don't recognize this England of all these disgusting, obese people who behave in this way then they're, they're not the same country you know I belong to that's the the view it is it, it, without any attempt whereas it, he's actually looking at why things why things are happening why the issue of racism um, why, why the media latches onto every example of racism why uh, uh, some other you know aspects of it why people behave in a certain way not just like a sociological thing. So it's not that profound, but it's so striking compared to, as um, one of our friends, Tamandra Hartness, put on Twitter, that you have to go to the sports pages for any attempt at social analysis on what's going on. Because on Twitter, you just get a, a condemnation and abuse, and that's not very much the way forward. It's just worth saying that the terrifying thing about racialising every aspect of society is that every conversation is seen through that prism. It's just worth kind of re restating that point um, that this is a bad social trend that we're experiencing. But one of the things I wanted to say about the, um, the whole kind of post-match racism debate is it's got heated and it's got angry and it's got people trying to work it out which is probably a sign that people care about racism right that people are not prepared to sort of uh, sit back and allow this narrative to dominate and um one of the things about the take taking the knee that pretty patel is being criticized and um is that it's a that it's the performance of virtue and i think 
this that we are entering this era maybe it's part of this globalization of the uh, culture wars thing where the performance of something is is seen as more important than the the material reality of things and you see that with the pandemic there's such a parallel with the pandemic i think in terms of how materially safe we are from contracting coronavirus and the performative aspects of wearing masks and all the rest of it which make you feel um safe rather than uh you know genuinely how much at risk are you so i think there's there's something about this performative aspect of society it reminds me um uh, you know of the soviet union where everybody's going around pretending they agree with the dominant narrative but in pubs and clubs and bars around the country uh people don't agree they just stay silent they've just kind of been excluded from the conversation i mean some of the reasons i've heard for people not liking taking the knee is because it's explicitly associated with blm and defunding the police and the disbanding the nuclear family and all that sort of thing. But most people aren't that political. It's more, I think, bringing politics into football, um, but also um, kind of being told what to do all the time. You know, if you're at work and you're told to wear this, stand there, use this greetings, you know, behave in a certain way. And then you want to kick off at the weekend, let off a bit of steam, enjoy the pantomime of football. And somebody says, no, you must behave this way, wear, not wear this uh, flag, you know, be- perform in a certain way. Then I think it just grinds people. I, I just don't think it's as political a reaction, the booing. It's more like just stop telling us what to do and how to be. I, I would just say that as Alistair has just said, we're, this summer, we have the Olympics coming up. These debates are rumbling on and on. COVID passports have just been announced for sports venues, which are, I think are very likely to come in as many sports authorities are, uh, are, are quite favourably inclined towards them. So we may well be back chewing the cud on, on, on these issues uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. Well, um, well obviously, I miss the, the, the live football um, you know, day after day. I think it's a relief that it's it's finished and we can get on with the serious business of sport, which is the transfer gossip. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I now, now expect week after week of mindless speculation about who's going to be going where, and especially after the Euros as well. And uh, sometimes that's more interesting than stuff that happens on the pitch. Well, I just thought it was worth reiterating something you said, Jeff, actually earlier on, um, which was that, you know, is this the way we deal with defeat? So as, as we've said in this podcast, there's been less analysis of the, the game itself and, and more an analysis of the fans. So rather than turning our chagrin on the players or the manager or decisions that were taken or mistakes that were made, it's just been turned upon the fans. Um, and, you know, you made the point, is this how England deals with defeat? And I just think that's a really interesting observation. I'm not sure what the conclusion of it is, but I think it's worth um, other people considering that point that it did seem to be the way we dealt with our our losing game on Sunday yeah I I think for me one of the lovely things as the tournament went on was that uh, and it was kind of reflected in these podcasts is that you talk more and more about the football um, and less and less about the politics and sadly a lot of the politics has come flying back in with all of the sort of demonization of fans that we've just been talking about and I think to me that that experience shows that I mean, you need these spaces that are no one's going to be completely unpoliticized, but you need these spaces where people can just enjoy stuff at face value, enjoy shared experiences about sport or art or whatever it is, and try and 
limit the amount of politics that gets into it and people can then appreciate things as they are and it provides a basis for people to have shared experiences in pubs or theatres or wherever it will be and it's kind of important that we try as far as we can to protect these spaces from the ever in, like ever growing encroachment of politicization or racialization and all the rest of it and try and just appreciate them for what they are we will fight of course as we all do at the academy of ideas and the rest of it to try like fight these political battles when they come but Ultimately, we know that it's important to have spaces that aren't so overly politicised. I suppose just a couple of thoughts on a, on a kind of social level. I, I think as a tournament, it's been the return of uh, some sort of life to the public sphere, and that's been brilliant. I mean, the I, I still think back to the post uh, semi final England victory over Denmark, and it was fantastic afterwards. I mean, everybody was just out. Um, loads of beers on board no doubt and and lots of celebrating and it was just uh it, it was just a brilliant atmosphere and i think that's obviously something that we've missed for uh, 16 months now so just on that level the tournament has been a brilliant uh intervention in terms of just allowing people to come out and and become social again on a football level i think it's been a brilliant tournament actually I, um i was arguing with uh, various people i was out with after the game the other night um i uh, we were saying probably the best uh, since uh, for 15 years anyway. I mean, I, I can't think of a, I, I mean, to, to be quite honest, I've not thought international tournaments have been that great for quite a few years. And, and this is probably the best since uh, Portugal in 2004 or Germany in 2006. Um, and it's just been interesting to, uh, on a football level, to see how football's developed in, 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 in the recent period. I think there's a real um, team ethos that's come to the fore in, in, in this tournament, which has been quite interesting. And it's kind of, I, I wasn't a great fan of expanding this tournament to 24 teams, but I think it's it's actually been a success. And, and the gap between some of the best teams and some of the weaker teams has, has probably narrowed because the team ethos has, has, has come to the fore, I think been interesting tactically sort of modern football with fullbacks some of the best players have been fullbacks I think Spinozola uh, Denzel Dumfries for Holland I thought was great uh, Semedo for Portugal um, interesting in midfield and how that's evolved and, and kind of the ongoing disappearance of centre forwards I thought Lukaku seemed like almost a blast from the past in this tournament in terms of the way that centre forwards appeared and and kind of as Italy showed on on Sunday to win that game putting someone uh, who'd uh, uh, played on the left in as a kind of false nine was was a kind of the way they won the game so all of these things on a football level have been fascinating and I just think have have made it a a fascinating tournament to watch and, and to be involved in in many ways. So that's the end of the Euro, Euro 2020 and the end of our Euro 2020 podcast series. But I'm sure we'll be back again soon. Politics and sport seems uh, intertwined for the foreseeable future. So thank you all very much and see everybody again soon. Happy